Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest for this inaugural episode of the podcast is Dr. Karen Longebaugh from the University of Idaho. I've known Karen for more than 20 years, and I know of no one more fitting to help launch the first rangeland management podcast ever. Karen, welcome to the show. You're very kind. I'm happy to be here. Can you give a, a brief history of man's approach to understanding and managing rangelands, particularly in the semi-arid rangelands of the western U.S.? Uh, a good place to start. Um, as you know, and, and hopefully many people realize that rangelands are all across the globe. So it's not like we're reinventing something out here in the West. The rangelands have been managed for 10,000 years at least. And they're in every continent, uh, you know, on the globe, um, about half of the world. But it's different here in the plains and, and in the Western U.S. This is where range management started. So the actual application of trying to understand how plants grow and how that's related to soils and, and creating range management practices, that started in the plains. Started in Nebraska, in, in Texas, North Dakota, kind of all up and along the plains were where the first principles of range management started. So a lot of what we are managing here on the other side of the Rockies, west of the Rockies, are based on principles that were created in a different ecosystem. So one of the challenges that we face out west is that it, it's different than some of the principles that were originally set down. I want to emphasize that range is not an old profession. Although we've been managing rangelands for a long time, the first PhDs in range came in the 60s. And so like the mm. first textbook of range management was in the 40s and 50s, the first kind of uh, guidelines. So it's a new profession. We have a lot to learn. And much of what we learned in the Plains, we're trying to apply it out West. Uh, and so the, some of the big changes, big differences out on our side of the Rockies as opposed to the Plains is one of the biggest one is that we get our precipitation early in the season. In the Plains, I get it in June and July. I grew up in North Dakota, so it's really common to get rain in June, uh, you know, and into July. But out here, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, out here in the West, um, we get most of our precipitation. If you don't have things by 1st of June, you're pretty much not not a lot of precipitation after that. So for me, that's one of the biggest differences. So I don't know if you see other things, and you know, you've you've lived out West all your life. I don't know, see if there's a, something I missed. And the variability from year to year in the amount of precipitation that we receive seems to be the variability seems to be higher than, than what you experience in some of the Midwest. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And especially on rangelands versus forested or other ecosystems. So that's mm -hmm. one thing that really defines rangelands. It is huge year-to-year -year variation. You know, one to three, four times uh, precipitation one year versus the next. And certainly as it gets more arid, that variation gets more and more profound. And the difference in the timing of precipitation probably drives the difference in the type of plant communities that are dominant even more than the relative aridity. How does the different type of plant community affect how they respond to grazing? You know, that's a good question. In the plains, uh, they have both cool and warm season uh, plants. So the growing, growing season, the grazing season is much longer. Uh, okay, it varies from North Dakota where we have more um, cool season and less warm season to Texas, uh, opposite of the mix. But still, they have that mix. Out here in the West, and especially the Pacific Northwest, we're pretty much cool season grasses, pretty much... A C3 grasses. So that changes when forage is greening up and sort of the, uh, that there's always plants kind of following the same trajectory in their production. Karen, if someone asked you, what are the 
dominant grazing philosophies that are in use, uh, I guess, both in natural resources academia and in the ranching community, what would be your answer? I see you know, both in academia and in the ranching world some conflict between the savory proponents who would say graze it hard, graze it fast, and give it a long rest period, and managers and researchers that have a lot of experience who argue for you know, a reasonable stocking rate combined with efforts to distribute animals in the landscape, and that that should be sufficient without attempting to more aggressively control uh, grazing period duration and rest. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you've captured two philosophies, to, both in academia and in management. But I would say that where we're going wrong is trying to focus on the prescription or the system. Uh, you know, early in my teaching, I talked about grazing systems, and I really talk more about grazing methods now because it's not about get this number of days on this and, and draw it all out. You we live in a dynamic world. Rangelands are highly dynamic. We've already talked about that. So we have to have approaches or methods that are highly dynamic. And so I think the people that are succeeding are those that know what to look for and, and under what conditions. So um, in my career, I've seen every system succeed and every system fail. And I think it's because the managers that are applying those are, are looking for what's happening on the ground. So they're controlling severity, whether it be high or low. I've, man, I've heard people speak really passionately about the, having really high severity and grazing really, you know, as, as much, take as much as they can off and, and allowing that rest. And I've heard people talk about saving plenty and taking very little off. And I've seen both those systems work. And I think it's because people are in different um, different places, their lands are different. Every different piece of ground uh, depends on what what system is going to work or what method is going to work. So I feel like both researchers and managers are starting to come together and try to pay attention to those outcomes that they want on the ground, what the 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 aspects of the plant, what the plant's doing. And uh, one of my favorite um, kind of new approaches is um, Sherm Swanson out of Nevada who talks about the mix-it-up approach. And it's just like don't do the same thing at the same place every year at the same time. And I think this, the skill of mixing it up is just making sure that you are kind of hedging your bets. You're not always going to graze hard and heavy at a bad time. But also having some intensity at some times and less at others. So that's not a very good answer in terms of mix it up is not something that people would like to, uh, to try to define. But I really think it's about paying attention to the system we work in. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that makes sense to almost everyone that's successful out there, I think, is paying attention to the right elements on the ground. How has scientific understanding of plant community dynamics and ecosystem functions affected grazing management, both in philosophy and practice, do you think? You know, again, we're a young science, range science is young, and we are only starting to really, I think, understand some of the plant responses to disturbance. And I, what I think the biggest change, at least in uh, philosophy and when we bring science and management together, is just understanding that, you know, these the plants that we manage on rangelands were designed to be grazed. I mean, grazing is a, is a process in all ecosystems, as is fire. We've changed the way that grazing and fire are occurring in ecosystems, but plants have uh, have systems and have uh, ecophysical systems and uh, uh, abilities to recover from grazing. So one of the things that I see that's different about the dynamics is that we're starting to just understand that 
plants can can come back if if we let them. We provide the right the right um, t- amount of rest and the right amount of grazing or whatever conditions the plant needs at the right time. So yeah, we used to think that plant that systems could um, when you remove grazing, they were going to go back to what they were before. That it was really linear. And we understand that that's not the case at all anymore, that grazing is just one of the many processes plants are, um, are dealing with. And they have processes to recover, not always back the same place that they started. <laughs> so uh, this multi, uh, you know, systems that, have multi, that are uh, dynamic and they have multi-stable um, states. Stable states, that's the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for. Not just one stable state, as Clemencian mm-hmm. ecology would have told us, that once we have a disturbance... The community can end up in many places and may never recur, re, uh, return to where we, where it was or where we think it should be. We will come back to that later. Uh, but, yeah, there could be multiple stable states that are desirable, not just, uh, not just stable but good or bad. Right, and management philosophy has to embrace that, um, that uh, it's going to be different on every piece of ground, but we can't always just remove the cows and everything goes back to where it was. That, we know that's not true. Mm-hmm. And back to your previous comment about more of a dynamic grazing system responding to what you see on the ground, having some understanding of what kinds of ecosystem processes are driving a shift from one stable state to a different one, whether a good one or a bad one, gives us some ability to manipulate those and attempt to steer them in a way that matches the goals of a ranch or a particular landscape. Yeah, and just be realistic about where you're at now. You know, Whether you like it or not, you better be realistic about what system you're in right now. Right. One of the common interpersonal conflicts that I've seen in in working for Extension for 15 years is where a rancher has taken over a lease, uh, say a large public lands lease, and has been managing differently than uh, the the previous operator had. And you know he'll say, "You should have seen what this looked like 10 years ago," and they almost always mean that it looked worse 10 years ago. Uh, but of course, there's often no photographic evidence or, or some kind of on-the-ground monitoring to back that up. Uh, but, but the conflict is that you know somebody else, say an external audience or a, a fisheries biologist or a wildlife biologist, you know, they have in their head their own scale of what they think the landscape mm-hmm, should be mm-hmm. in terms of quality. And if they think that it's currently at a 5 and they want it to be at a 10, and the rancher is saying, yeah, but it was at a 1 10 years ago, and today it's at a five, you know, in the rancher's mind, that means we should continue doing whatever we're doing that has caused it to improve to this current condition. Uh, Whereas somebody else is saying, yeah, but it's not good enough. And the assumption is usually that then if you remove grazing, it's going to snap back to some ecological nirvana, you know, or, or the historic conception of climax. Uh, if we just remove animals. Right. And so it's uh, be realistic about where you're at right now. You may never get there again. I'm sorry, I'm never going to be able to run a four-minute mile. Right. Just never going to happen. And so you got to be realistic about what what you can do, but also what it, what what's the potential? What, what could it become? Mm-hmm. And you're right. People driving by on the road, they have an idea of what the, what beautiful land would be and what what the conditions should look like. And the answer is not always just, in fact, it's seldom just removing grazing. Many of the larger ranchers in the West have access to native shrub steppe, dry forest, uh, maybe even higher elevation, uh, music, mixed conifer forest that often have very different plant communities. 
How do you think most ranchers approach the need to graze differently in those different settings? Yeah, or or do they? Um, uh, the good ranchers understand that. They understand that they have these different um, opportunities at different places on the landscape, and they put those together in a puzzle that really works, that, that really um, accentuates each uh, the abilities of each of those ecosystems. So I think it's like a board game. The good ranchers understand when to put what where. And again, going back to the dynamic piece. So now we're talking about not just dynamic within uh, a year, but within a place. So changing elevation and changing the kinds of lands that you have, and um, yeah, there's no there's no there's no playbook on this one. There's no uh, go here and then go there. There's some general rules uh, and some ideas, but this is where the art of range management comes in. I think you know when I was in school, I was taught that range management was a science and an art, and I thought, ah, oh, that is just bullpucky because if we knew enough we could do the science and we would understand the scientific basis for all of this. And I've come completely full circle on that. I think we'll never know enough because it's this interaction between ecosystems that we can never know. Mm -hmm. And so that, and that's where good managers, good land managers, good ranchers, they, they have this sort of inherent idea of what's going to happen if I move from this meadow here to that sage step. And yeah, we have some general patterns over years that seem to work but again, it's an opportunity to, to change what's on the ground because of where things are on the ground. The manager needs to be in tune, so to speak, uh, in, in an intuitive sort of way with what's happening in the landscape, where there's ecosystem interactions that are more complex than, than what we can tease out. Or if we did tease them out here, it'd be different over there. Or you know, it'd be different at a different scale. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we, we, we need to do some due diligence in helping people look at the right stuff. F find out what are, how do you get in tune? What is it that you're looking at? And uh, things like the grazing response index, which I know you've worked with a bit, but that's, what that does is just help you look at the right stuff and look at something and try to see what's happening. To ask the right questions. Yeah. And, and although I would say many good man managers are looking at the right stuff, they have no idea what it is they're actually seeing, what they're actually looking at. And so I think that's something that you in your extension role and me in a, as a scientist and, and managers with us can help us say, you know, this is something you got to pay attention to. And oddly enough, after nearly several decades of trying to study this stuff, we're just starting to say, this is what you should be looking at. Mm -hmm. And here's what's actually happening and the things that you're doing right. Here's some of the scientific underpinnings for what's actually happening yeah, right. in the real world. Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. Some people would say that the kind of short-duration, high-density grazing uh, advocated since the 70s and 80s by Alan Savory is even more important on the drier, sparser plant communities like we find in desert rangelands uh, because it allows for much longer regrowth and recovery periods from that grazing event. And of course, one of the difficulties in any natural resource research is that it's extremely difficult to hold everything constant except for the one variable you're trying to test. And so it, this is nowhere more prominent than in the world of grazing research mm -hmm. on a wide range of plant communities. And you know, in contrast to that, logistically and economically, there's often not enough value in those sparse desert landscapes to support uh, the cost of the infrastructure and manpower that it, that it may take to apply that kind of grazing management. I really like Nathan Sayre's definition of rangelands, that they're landscapes where no more lucrative economic activity has yet taken <laughs> yeah, root. That's right. You know, this 
is kind of a sarcastic response to the historical definition of rangelands that was in rangelands textbooks, that, that it was all the land that was left over right. once you got rid of forests and cropland and cities and open water. Uh, so the economic marginality of, of these rangelands-based enterprises like ranches can maybe promote exploitation. We certainly saw that in the cattle boom of the late 19th century, which continued into the 20th in places where there was a little more grass. So is that intense management necessary? Is it ecologically better? Well, good question. As you know, that's a ra it's pretty raging debate. It's been there since the 80s. So when I was in school, there were you know, some people trying to prove that these intense methods were working or were not working. And as you mentioned, it's just something science can't be the referee for. It's just too difficult to study and say this method does work or this doesn't. And so that's left us in a situation now where we've seen uh, these intensive systems work in places and fail in places. Um, you pointed out some some you know, food for thought, some things that we really got to remember when we're doing this. One is the how much input you're going to put in that, because making a living on rangelands is tough. Uh, it's, it's marginal at best, and it is kind of uh, hard to think of ourselves as whatever left, was left over that you grazed because you can do anything else without it or uh, with it. But at least you can use grazing on rangelands, uh, but it's pretty marginal. So don't be putting in a lot of fence. Uh, feeding cattle in the winter, those kinds of things. We've we've known for years that that's kind of a recipe for an economic disaster on many rangelands. So that's you got to pay attention to that, whether that's going to be worth the benefit of being able to control when plants are when and how much an individual plant is grazed. So again, eye on the ball, when and how much is an individual plant grazed, and then how long does it have to rest? Each person's going to have to make a decision on whether that fits their situation. So kind of my answer to this is. Um, it, we can't, we, is it ecologically best? We, we can't actually know. We can't study it um, in, and do an experiment on it. But we can know by looking at the response to the land. So again, paying attention to, is the land getting closer to what you want it to look for, to its potential? Are you increasing diversity? Are you increasing amount? Um, one thing I would say that um, really have never shown that heavy grazing um, really can double biomass. Biomass is given to us out in the West by the amount of precipitation we get. And uh, we can change the quality of the biomass. We can change how valuable it is to livestock when it's used. Sometimes we can increase biomass a little bit with grazing or increase it a little bit without grazing. So I think Mother Nature and rain tells us how much we have. What we can change with intensive management is the quality of that forage. So again, it goes back to the skill of the manager. And yes, in answer to your question, you do need to be intensively managed. Now, when I say intensively, I don't necessarily mean using the plants really hard. I mean being intense. I mean looking at the ground, making sure of what you're seeing. So I don't think there's much uh, support for just throw the cows out there and pick them up in the fall. <laughs> I think we all need to be intense managers. Mm -hmm. So you think the future of range grazing is in more nomadic herding and less fences? I am a pretty big fan of thinking about going sort of backward to where we really did intensively manage with herds. Um, this new concept of in-herding, I don't know if you've heard that term yet about where we're, uh, th there's a person that is managing the livestock but also really paying attention to the ground and they're trying to go back to an era of um, kind of sheep herding level, very close herds now with cattle and other, other animals. And so yeah, there's a lot of future in this old, old technology of really paying attention to where animals are on the ground. I've 
purchased Fred Provenza's new book on on the art of shepherding, but have not gotten very far into it yet. But that's a fascinating topic. Yeah, and I think again, that's that's an old technology. He, he mm-hmm. in that book is talking with some uh, other herders that have just tried to figure out why did that work? Why did that old technology work? And and what Fred is doing and his co-authors is again helping you pay attention to what's what's important. What are you looking at? What's really happening to the animal? Mm-hmm. There's one rabbit trail about terminology that might be useful to kind of talk through now, both for the benefit of the rest of this episode and also further on in the podcast. I think there's some confusion about what we mean by stocking rate, stock density, intensive management versus severity. In my mind, stocking rate is not the same thing as you know, real-time instantaneous stock density. And I think that's one of the main points where the Alan Savory's proponents and um, and some of the brisky fanboys miss each other. Right, right. You can apply a light stalking rate. In other words, you know the amount of animals that we have on a very large landscape, but still apply very high stock density inside of that landscape. That's right, right. So stocking rate is just how many animals you had out there for a specific time. So you could have that anim- some number of animals out there for the whole year or a larger number of animals out there for just a few days. And those will have very different effects on the land. And um, yeah, and I think those are, again, those are two tools. Stock density can be used really effectively to do things like reduce selection of animals or of plants that the animal chooses, that they, they're less selective when they're in really dense uh, groups and so if you're doing targeted grazing or something like that maybe that's the effect that you want on the other hand if you really want animals to have maximum choice all year round then uh, a, a, le- a lower cent- a density now in both those cases you could have the same stocking rate mm-hmm. so yeah so I think people are talking across each other high stocking rate just is the number of animals you had out there in a year not at any one time during that year and they're both tools different tools mm-hmm. and the term grazing intensity is often used to refer to what I would call uh, grazing severity. And I think this is also one of the places where people miss each other. Intensive management usually means that you're applying a higher stock density and moving animals more frequently. But inside of a high stock density, you could graze very lightly or very severely, just depending on how long the animals are in a given landscape. You could have 100,000 pounds per acre and just top the plants and move on, or you could graze it all the way into the ground, depending on how long animals stay. That's right. Severity is, um, you'll almost have to correct me, it's a term that, um, that it definitely is different than intensity. Severity is how much of the plant was removed, just much like fire severity, you know, right. kind of how much of the, of the area was burned. And so that, uh, that's an important characteristic. It's like percent utilization would be a term we used to use, or still mm-hmm. use for that. And um, that, again, that's a tool. Sometimes you want to graze severely. You want plants to, you want to remove a lot of the biomass, other times less. But in both those situations, you could be intensively managing. You'd be paying intense attention to the situation. Right. And in a rangeland setting, one of the reasons for promoting shorter duration, higher density grazing is because once you approach higher animal densities, you tend to get a little bit more trampling and less consumption and doing that in the dormant season has the potential at least to lay down plant material on the ground to cover bare ground which you may not get with 
uh, a lighter density. Yeah, and then also in dense, if you're having a high uh, stock density, then you're also animals are more evenly distributed. So not only are you, um, you know, having a, an effect of the animals on the ground to get that biomass to the ground surface, but you're doing it more evenly across your pasture. Both of those are important. Related to confusing terminology, uh, there have been a number of efforts to try to capture grazing use numerically in a way that would potentially be more useful than the historical conception of the animal unit month. And most people in the range profession know that the animal unit month is simply a quantity of forage. It's not a, necessarily an animal factor, just the amount of forage that a thousand pounds of ruminant would consume over a month. Uh, but because of the confusion over how AUMs are applied, they have been uh, widely discredited as a nearly useless way of expressing grazing use. So the AUM communicates how many pounds of forage either are available or have been removed in a grazing season. Uh, that could be that could be good or bad. Do you think there's other better ways of expressing grazing use, or does the AUM still have value? Yeah, it's interesting that there would be such a debate over uh, over this term, the animal unit month, the AUM. But what's changed is when people think of it as an animal, they think of this term that was created sometime in that 30s and 40s era when the Taylor Grazing Act uh, was enacted and, and we started counting up forage on um, Forest Service allotments and, and then be, later BLM allotments. We came up with this term. It's, it made a lot of sense that that's the amount of forage that a 1,000-pound cow and her calf at that time would eat. Okay, what's the problem? Back in the 30s and 40s, maybe a 1,000-pound cow was pretty normal. Now, a thousand pound or a, a cow on rangeland is probably closer to 13, uh, 13 or 1,400 even. Uh, that, that number changes over time. It's certainly creeped up since about the 90s. Uh, now animals are very big, and, and now the trend is that maybe we're going to get smaller animals out on range. So that's going to change. The right weight of an animal on range will change. So my uh, philosophy or my thought is that we got to keep something the same. So let's keep our eye on the ball, which being, as you mentioned, an AUM is an amount of forage. So if what we should probably do if we did anything is kind of change the animal, get the animal out of that term, because we do need a constant amount of forage that we're trying to um, have on, on land. So when I lease land, I'm going to be leasing an amount of forage. If I'm trying to improve land, I might want to improve the amount of forage. We might want to improve those AUMs. If I'm going to use animals on that ground, I'm going to use that amount of forage, that AUM. Uh, but the fact that the kind of critter that I use to harvest that AUM, that can change. So let's let that be variable. It could be big cow, it could be 10 goats, whatever. Let that change. But let's always keep our eye on the ball, which we're, we're trying to focus on how much forage is available to use. Because that's what we can affect with management. We can change how the quality of that forage, that AUM, or we can change the amount per acre. A little bit, not much, but we can, we can truly um, make sure that the forage that's available for animals, uh, we have some control over that. So, so I, the confusion um, or the misuse has to do with the way we communicate animal demand. The AUM is a good way to communicate forage supply. That's right. But we have to understand that if you have 1,800 pounds of animal in a pair, we have to we have to be careful to express accurately how much those are going to consume out of our out of our allotted AUMs. Exactly right. And again, always making sure that you're watching what's going on, on the ground, no matter what 
stocking rate, how many animals you have out there, no matter how many animal AUMs of forage you're trying to use, always paying attention to what that's doing on the ground. I really like Charlie Orchard's modified version of the the grazing response <clears throat> grazing response index, which was developed by uh, Dr. Roy Roth. This still doesn't communicate anything like a stalking rate, but but maybe in our dynamic management of rangelands, the stalking rate isn't quite as critical, and we're trying to plan grazing, you know, to to achieve some desired outcome in the landscape. Uh, what do you think about ditching stalking rates and using uh, outcomes like a GRI score as a goal for management? I, I'm certainly willing to think of that because I'm, I really want to, us to start thinking about paying attention to what matters on the ground, the outcomes. And that's where I think the GRI, the Grazing Response Index, has done, it's, it's really headed us in that direction, has said pay less attention to sort of how many animals you've got there, but pay attention to when they're, when they're there, how well they're distributed, what they're doing to the ground, what time of year, if there's moisture available, those sorts of uh, ideas that set the context for grazing, we're paying attention to that. And uh, so I, I actually like the idea of moving towards outcomes and less from prescriptions. And stocking, rate is, stocking rates and grazing systems are prescriptions. And so moving towards towards outcomes, I think, is uh, I'm hearing it more and more about uh, outcome-based management and paying attention to outcomes. And certainly the Grazing Response Index has gotten us uh, with a tool in that direction. It seems that we can't totally ditch stalking rates. I, I've said for years that 10,000 acres will likely support more than one cow, no matter where those 10,000 acres are. And one acre won't support a thousand cattle. I don't care how intense your management is. And somewhere in between, there's some range of values that represents a sustainable amount of animals that a landscape can sustain. You know, in, in the in the wildlife world, they might call it carrying capacity instead of stalking rate. How much do you think those uh, those edges, those thresholds, um, move? In other words, how wide is the range of Stocking rates that a, a given piece of land might hold, and do we stock? Do we do we stock for the lower end of that? Do we stock for the middle, where there's really no question whether it's a good year or a bad year, it would be sustainable? Well, uh, you, you're right to bring up sort of the connection between stocking rate and carrying capacity, because in in my mind, that we're trying to set stocking rates somewhere that are related to carrying capacity of the land. So let's start with that as an assumption, and then your your other point and things that we've talked about before is. Wow, the, it is so dynamic that setting some static level, which has been the goal of range management for a long time, to have some static level that we know exactly how many critters or how many AUMs we're going to have on the ground year after year after year, um, that's an illusion. I think we have to get far away from that because our systems are so dynamic that you can easily have twice the amount of forage produced one year uh, compared to the, the last or compared to the next. So let's quit managing for uh, the idea of having a constant stocking rate or a constant um, carrying capacity. And let's just realize that we live in a world that can change from year to year. And let's think about how to, how to make that change. Again, you've mentioned Nathan Sayer's book a couple of times, The Politics of Scale. And one of the really important points in that book is that one of the things that really drove all of range management policy and science was this idea that we could set a stocking rate and we could manage that stocking rate year in, year out. And it's pretty clear we can't do that. We really need to rethink 
and and reestablish ways to work with a di- within a dynamic system. Now, do I know exactly how to do that? No. <laughs> Historically, we thought about trying to be one way to do it would be to be very conservative with your stocking rate so that in bad years you still would have enough and in good years you'd leave a left a lot left over kind of for the future. That's certainly one approach. There's some real downsides to that depending on what your operation is whether Consistency from year to year is more important than using forage when it's available or getting off of the range when uh, there just isn't enough uh, forage. So I challenge people to sit and think about um, what is a new way of thinking about grazing based on outcomes in a dynamic system. Then I think we're going to get closer to mirroring what's what's out there on the ground Mm -hmm. to use by animals. There's a group of us at WSU that are working on some publications on rangeland resiliency. Uh, using a series of case studies to illustrate the various ways that different ranchers uh, manage for greater resiliency, and one of the one of the findings is that some ranchers manage for really high operational resiliency. So, you know, if we say that rangelands are characterized as much by variability as by aridity, one of the ways that we can accommodate that is to be able to you know, destock or stock up in response to, you know, within year uh, lower forage production or higher forage production. The other option to manage for resiliency is to manage for really high ecological resiliency and, and shoot for a really conservative stocking rate every single year so that you always have, you know, a lot of a lot of money in the bank and you're never really uh, getting yourself vulnerable in terms of consuming too much. Yeah, yeah uh, just you're you're absolutely right. Those would be the kind of the two extremes of philosophies there, and there's everything in between. Uh, much the same way when you uh, look at your portfo- portfolio of investments, some people are more conservative than others, so they really want to just sort of have a, a very constant um, out- output of of resources. Others really want to catch the market when it's good and Move and get up when it's low. And so it's the same idea on rangelands. But uh, again, your, your, the resiliency concept is important because those are two very different philosophies, but both of them uh, provide resiliency in an operation. Going back a little bit to an earlier discussion about uh, classical ideas of succession toward a, a climax state, uh, how would you describe what has been a pretty significant shift over the last 30 years from the successional model advanced by Frederick Clements to more of a, a non-equilibrium model. We mentioned that just briefly in talking about multiple stable states, uh, but how would you describe uh, the basic tenets of Frederick Clements' theory and why did that not hold up in similarity ecosystems? And then we'll talk just a bit about the non-equilibrium model and how those principles are institutionalized in things like the state and transition models. Yeah, so let's start out with just a little bit of history. Um, so Frederick Clements and his colleagues were in the tall grass prairie, Nebraska and Kansas. Most of that work was really proposed in that that ecosystem, which has growing season bi- uh, precipitation and also has cool and warm season grasses. So it really is a system that has a lot of biomass during the growing and the grazing season. And what Clements and his um, you know his colleagues found was that uh, if you removed grazing or removed disturbance, and grazing was the big one they were working with, that then the system would go back to this single um, high ecological climax system, you know, the, the 
the ultimate of what that that land could produce in absence of disturbance. So that then was picked up pretty quickly by the grazing um, people who were trying to develop grazing science. At the time, E.J. Dijksterhuis was a, a very big proponent of thinking of that removing animals and you're going to go back to a higher level condition. Remember, he was the one that proposed the good, uh, f- the fair, uh, poor, fair, good, and excellent system. Mm-hmm. That if you were, if your land was an excellent, that meant it was very close mm-hmm. to that climax, that single um, ecosystem climax. And if it was poor, all you had to do was remove cows and it was going to move back up that successional stage. So a simple, easy, um, one thing's moving up and down and you're moving cattle to, to do that. And of course, there, there was um, in all of that the idea that uh, it was easier to accomplish in good years and that you would usually be set back in bad, in dry years. Uh, so that you could measure range condition by a departure or degree of similarity to a single plant community that represents the pinnacle of plant progress. That's right. And furthermore, if you want to get there, all you got to do is remove grazing. Right. So it was a pretty simple model. We didn't have any other models at the time, and it did work fairly well in the, in the prairie, uh, in the tall grass and the mixed prairie. The, it still works pretty well. But what, the missing piece was that those scientists proposed it as if it was going to be all across the globe, that it was always going to work that way. And the early scientists, especially in the desert southwest in Arizona and New Mexico, they were trying to make it work, but it just wasn't what they were seeing, that the, the land was changing with or without grazing, and that if, if they had, it was degraded and they removed grazing, that did not mean that it was going to go back to some, some system. Uh, for example, at the Hornada in uh, Las Cruces, they were studying um, black grama, which uh, is sensitive to grazing, and uh, if they removed grazing, that didn't do anything. In fact, it was the, in, the increase in, in uh, mesquite that mm-hmm. changed the dynamics for black grama, and it really wasn't related to things that we could do on the ground with management. Uh, also in Australia, they were struggling with this. It just it wasn't fitting what they were seeing. They weren't seeing that they could remove a disturbance and the land was going to go back to this predetermined high condition, what it was uh, given the climate and the soils that they had. So it was actually the Australians and uh, folks in, in Israel and other scientists throughout the globe that really pushed the bar and said, this isn't working. Let's, we got to come up with an alternative. And so um, a Walker and Noemier and Westaby all uh, kind of got together and put something on paper, really very influ- influential paper, and said, there's not one stable state. There's not one ultimate pinnacle uh, community. There are many that once the, once a disturbance happens, it can change the system and head in, head in a completely new trajectory for which you may never be able to return to what the system was when you started. So again, this whole uh, discussion that we've been having, it talks a lot about dynamics. We just keep coming back to that, the multi-stable state. There's not one stable state. There's multiple types of stressors, and they're going to have different outcomes depending on whether they're combined or individual and in what conditions that they occur. Uh, so now the, you mentioned a little bit about state and transition models. At, at least we're trying to institutionalize that in the U.S. now and saying, well, there's a reality that once you get to this state, you may or may never be able to come back. And although our state and transition models are fairly simple, at least that we're trying to get at this idea that there's multiple states that any ecosystem could occur in. And so it's taken us um, 50 years to kind of get to gr- our hands around this. The, the paper by uh, Walker and Neumier and others was published in the mid-'80s. And here we are, several decades later, and we're finally starting to embrace it. 
We talked about grazing for outcomes rather than rigidly following a prescription for a certain style of grazing management. How, how would you identify some of those possible outcomes and or measure them so that we can track progress toward that goal? You and many people are asking that question these days, Tiff. Um, I, I really love the idea of managing for outcomes. Putting the meat on those bones is more difficult. Uh, we also mentioned the grazing response index as maybe one way to do that. Uh, to be honest with you, I have not used it a lot. You, you've used it. So what are some of the details for which you might use the GRI to get to outcomes? Yeah, the grazing response index was, was designed to indicate different grazing variables that would lead toward or away from rangeland health. The original grazing response index identified three, three factors that a, that a rancher could manipulate to achieve different outcomes. One of those is the degree of utilization. And, and so whether you have you know, light or moderate or heavy utilization would give you a, a different score that would be added to other variables or factors to come up with a, a final score. Uh, one of the other factors is the amount of time that a plant has to regrow from a, a given grazing event, and that if a plant has, um, if, if, a, if a landscape is grazed almost the entire growing season, then it would receive a low score, a negative score, and if a landscape has a significant part of the active growing season in order to recover or prepare for a grazing event, it would receive a, a high value. Uh, I really like the the modified version of the grazing response index developed by Charlie Orchard. Charlie Orchard was a uh, a grazing consultant who's mostly worked in the West and mostly in semi-arid or arid ecosystems mm -hmm. that are dominated by bunch grasses. And in the bunch grasses, the timing of grazing or the, the stage of plant growth when grazing occurs has as much to do with whether or not that plant remains healthy or persists over time as, uh, as how frequently it has been grazed. And so he, he gave a series of scores based on different stages of growth. So in other words, if, if a plant got grazed during the period of time when it's trying to produce a seed head or say in the boot stage, it would receive a negative score because it's been fairly well documented that bunch grasses don't tolerate well grazing at that stage of growth. If, if their growing points are removed during the period of time when they're elevating all of those growing points, they tend to not recover in that growing season and are stunted for the next. Uh, but he also identified a factor that, that managers cannot control necessarily but have to manage around. Uh, which is the variation in growing season precipitation within a year. So if we receive dramatically below average precipitation in a, in a growing season or a grazing season, uh, that absolutely affects the world of the ranch manager, even though it's not something that he can manipulate, uh, but he has to work around it. Uh, we've, we've applied the grazing response index in a coordinated resource management group that is managing a, a multiple ownership landscape under a single grazing plan uh, in central Washington on you know, classic shrub step plant communities. Uh, it was a landscape that had been grazed pretty heavily for quite a long time. And so one of our objectives was to uh, 
apply grazing in a way that would allow the landscape uh, not necessarily to recover, but, but to be healthy. And we've used the GRI scores as one of the ways to, to guide that management, uh, partly because of logistics and some limitations on various pieces of agency ground, we have often ended up grazing some of the private ownership in dormancy. And grazing in dormancy means that the, at the, the animals are uh, allowing nearly all of the grazing, all of the growing season for plant growth. And then it also means that they're not grazing the plants during this period of, uh, this critical period of internode elongation or bolting. Uh, so we've ended up with, with quite high GRI scores, and we see the results of that on the ground in terms of uh, increased biomass production, decreasing bare ground, higher litter cover, um, significantly higher species diversity. It's not uncommon uh, for, say, a, a, a species richness plot of 10 by 50 meters to have 60 plant species in it. Uh, but the kind of scores that, that we have ended up with applying that style of grazing management have been uh, around three. And the way the GRI works, any score that's higher than zero is expected to have positive long-term effect on the plant community, whatever that might mean. It, it may not mean toward a single uh, expected plant community, um, but promotes ecosystem processes like water conservation, species diversity, plant production, plant reproduction. Right. So you, so the GRI is not really the goal. Like the, the actual index is not the goal. It's not the outcome, but it's a way of measuring what the effect of your treatments, your context, the grazing context might have on the ground. You're still going to need to look at whether it's working or not. And it sounds like you're doing that. So I, I, I what I like about the index is it's really helping you see what to look at and, and what about your management you should pay attention to. Yes, I found that it has been a good tool, and, and in, in this landscape and in others, we would recommend measuring some specific attributes of plant communities to identify the specific things that are changing in response to the grazing management that is guided by the GRI. Always good advice. And this is probably a good place to recap some of the take-home messages from this podcast episode. This has been a pretty wide-ranging discussion, so it may be useful to, to find some take-home points. What would be a couple from your perspective? Uh, one is that it's come up time and time again is this, that we live in dynamic ecosystems. So uh, everything changes from year to year and from place to place. So one of the take-home messages is that there's not one answer uh, that every person will have, every manager will have a different way to approach that, but all of those need to be based on some ability to to deal with and survive dynamic ecosystems. It seems to be a, a common theme in what we've talked about. I think a second would be that there are uh, multiple approaches to grazing that can be effective. The critical thing is to have a manager who's paying attention to the results on the ground, understanding that every ecosystem will be different and the same practices may achieve different results in different settings. 
Well, and following up on that, another important point that we talked about that different places and different settings is that much of range management, what we learned early on in the profession, was conducted in the plains where the ecosystems are quite different in Nebraska, Kansas, North Dakota, South Dakota than they are on our side of the Rockies. So I'm, I question um, some of the value of some of that really old literature. We've learned a lot since then, so people should really pay attention to the new ideas and new approaches that are coming out uh, from Extension and others. So maybe we can conclude that the range profession is learning an awful lot about the science of range management, but there still remains quite a bit of art that is necessary to get successful results on the ground. Now we've mentioned quite a few different authors and uh, publications in this episode. We will make available uh, that list as well as PDFs of the documents um, where that's a possibility in the show notes on the Art of Range website. Karen and I would like to thank you for joining us on this inaugural podcast episode. For those who are interested in some more detailed information about outcomes-based grazing, you can check out uh, one of her websites and work that has been done and promoted through the Society for Range Management at targetedgrazing.org. Karen, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. 